This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Ament and John Wicks, two legendary Missoula-based musicians and friends who've collaborated to form Deaf Charlie. Deaf Charlie's first full-length album, Catastrophic Metamorphic, released on June 30th. Jeff, John, thanks for coming on the show. Justin, how you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. (laughs) So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? John, let's start with you. Well, I grew up kind of all over the place. My dad was in the Navy. He was a Navy commander. So we moved around every three years or so. Born in San Francisco, lived in Omaha, Nebraska, lived in New Orleans, lived in Pensacola, Florida. And then my dad retired from the Navy, so we moved up to Bainbridge Island, Washington. And that's pretty much where I grew up. My mom worked in social services helping out kids. Very good. Yeah. Jeff, what's your origin story here? Exactly the opposite. I I spent (laughs) my entire youth in Big Sandy, Montana. Uh, I was born in Haver because they didn't have a hospital, but um, lived uh, 18 years up in north central Montana. My dad grew up in west central uh, Minnesota, just like 60 miles east of Fargo. And my mom grew up in Haver. Yeah. And your dad was a barber, right? He was a barber, yep. When he was in the Army, he uh, undercut the the uh, Army barber uh, setup. I think it was 50 cents to get a haircut. And he he was like, I can cut hair for 25. <laughs> it still and, made money. Yeah. And that within a few months, he became a loan shark. That was, that was, and then, and then he got, and then they found out about it and he almost, almost got let go. Is like, that right? But made a, made enough money that when he got out of the army, he bought a brand new 1959 Buick. Like it looks like the Batmobile. Like these pictures, like <laughs> big black wings. Like it's the most one of the most beautiful cars I've ever seen. Uh, so let's talk about Def Charlie origin story. Seems like a pandemic project. Although you guys collaborated a little before the pandemic. List savvy listeners might know that uh, comeback player of the year uh, underlines our outro music here, your wonderful drum roll, if you will, to get into that song. But yeah, that was that your first collaboration? Yeah. A good friend of ours, Dow, had passed away. Uh, I mean, that was like six years ago, I think, mm-hmm. five years ago, maybe. Sounds about right. As I do sometimes, like as a way of moving through like trauma, like you sit down with your guitar and come up with something. And Dow had written this thing at the gym that said, I'm the comeback player of the year. Dow, and, and then everybody laughed when they saw it because Dow was like four feet 10, like <laughs> maybe like holding 40 extra pounds or something. But like like the, the most competitive, best, like fun human. And so that was the first thing that came to mind. I was like, well, that this is a way of like sort of showing off Dow's sense of humor. And, um, and John had moved to town maybe three, four years before that. So it was like the obvious choice because John worked with him. Yeah, I right. Uh, Dow was my boss actually uh, at Uptown Espresso, and Dow was character. And Jeff and I had always been one degree of separation from each other, and it was the one degree was our friend Curtis, mm. uh, who I worked with, also worked for Dow at Uptown Espresso, and that particular place was sort of Jeff's safe haven back when things were really crazy for him. And so I used to make Jeff's coffee. Didn't really know him very well, just on a crazy fortuitous invitation. I went to a Christmas party and Jeff was there and I went up to him and said, hey man, I've lost touch with our mutual friend Curtis. 
I'd love to get back in touch with him. And, uh, and he took a selfie with me and sent it to Curtis. Curtis freaked out. And, and we have, and anyways, Jeff and I have been sort of friends ever since. It's, it's just been one of the coolest things to have happen to me and one of these wonderful things that are specific to Missoula that I really cherish. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that, that can kind of happen in a small town yeah. uh, in a unique way. And the two of you were, were both here in Missoula for most of the pandemic. I remember we had a conversation during that time. And you were working, sort of throwing some music back and forth together. That became something real, I believe. Was that the yeah. first sort of yeah, right. single that you, you, you both produced and put out there? Yeah. 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 That kind of was sort of the litmus test that we could actually do it, I think, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, the other cool thing is, for me, it was a dream realized because I also got to include my friend Marlon Grace, who's also on that song. Okay. He's the MC on that yeah, song. Yeah, I and, wanted to ask about Marlon. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into him. But he's he's <laughs> a, a true talent and, and one of my best friends. And, and it was just a, a really great opportunity to have him involved as well. Awesome. And so what is that process like when you're... I don't know, you come together, you start jamming, you start sending back and forth bits of music. How does it then become a thing that you decide is something you want to put out in the world? Well, I I think I knew when we did Comeback Player of the Year, like when John put drums on that song, I was like, wow, he like he can like his tool kit is big. When the idea came up, you know, when the pandemic hit and there and I had had written a few songs and I reached out to John, I I just knew that the there was sort of like endless possibilities in the collaboration. Like I, the the little bit that I had been around John, I I knew that the project could sort of be really open ended creatively, and um, that was sort of the funnest part of the project was just sort of pushing each other to get into some places that maybe were uncomfortable or we were unsure about, and. Um, you know, I mean, there's a couple of sort of reggae grooves, which if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago that I would be part of a, writing a song with a root. I mean, there's something about reggae to me that has always been so um, uh, unique to Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, for me in particular, being a white guy playing reggae is like kind of the worst possible thing that you could do. Um, even though a lot of my favorite bands like The Police and The Clash did it amazingly, I think we I think we sort of looked at those bands and thought we can kind of get into that little zone. And mm-hmm. John was like fully into that world and like could, could play the hell out of those grooves. Yeah, that was that that was like that was my favorite part was just like okay, how do I sing over this or how do I play over this and not have it be hokey? That part of the whole process was just fantastic it was like so great and was most of this done sitting together like in a shared studio or were you just sending none tracks back yeah, and forth yeah, electronically we yeah, still was... have yet to do that oh yeah. interesting <laughs> okay yeah, yeah we're gonna perform live together later in the year right yeah, so yep, we gotta yeah, get yeah. that tightened up yeah. at some point yeah the day before yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll get together finally yeah <laughs> but in a way it was kind of um empowering uh because we were forced well jeff was sort of forced to deal with whatever i sent him <laughs> right okay you know and and that reggae thing that he mentioned is was a scary thing for me as well as as, as obsessed as i am with that music i too was scared mm-hmm. always to play it uh, because i've seen it done poorly i was in new york and i got in a cab 
I was doing the Today Show or Good Morning America or something like that. And I got in a cab and a Jamaican guy was the driver. And he asked me what I was doing in town and I told him and he said, well, what kind of band are you? And I explained to him what Fitz and the Tantrums did. And he said, well, do you guys play any reggae? And I sort of laughed and shook my head, you know, I'm like, <laughs> hell no. And he goes, and he, he kind of looked at me in the rearview mirror and sort of like kind of pissed. Oh. And he said, why do you react that way? And I said, well, I don't want to do it a disservice. You know, that, that music in particular is, is such a distinct style specific to that region. And from a drumming standpoint, it's such a, uh, I hate to use the word simple, but when you distill something down to that level of simplicity, it's, it becomes so much harder because you don't have any technical things that can mask perhaps or fake any sort of inflection. Okay. Yeah, it's very hard to speak without an accent in that style on the drums. So when I told him that, he, he kind of called me out on it and said, that was BS. He's like, if you're into reggae, you should be into reggae and not worry about being such a purist or anyone else being a purist, you should go dive in deep into that music and check it out. And that cab driver kind of changed my life. You yeah. know, um, reggae in a, in a really cool way is able to cover really tough subject matter, dark subject matter, mm -hmm. but still have this lightness about it where when you're listening to it, you don't really even realize that those people are telling you something really heavy because you, it's reggae, right? the music's so, fun. Yeah, and man, you're on the yeah. beach, whatever, you know. And, and I love that about that, you yeah. know. When Jeff was sending these songs, like, if you listen to the lyrics, this stuff's heavy, man. And so for me to actually be able to apply that sort of school of thought where bringing us, you know, sort of this kind of lightness to the darkness, that was really fun for me. As you were describing it, the sort of mixture of playfulness with some dark themes, I mean, that comes out not only in the single, Losing My Mind, but the video itself, too, is, is kind of plays with some of those themes as well. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of the a lot of the themes on this uh, were sort of the subjects that we were all sort of thinking about and things that we were going through, you know, in the early days of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I had happened to lose like three different friends, like kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. None of them from COVID. I was in a I was in a dark place looking for some light and like playing music is always the way. And like and and especially songs sort of in tribute form which a lot of these songs are sort of that as we got you know into the in mid section of like passing the stuff back and forth and sort of deciding like where we were going to settle you know on it instrumentally um a lot of the stuff was in this really cool place where um it wasn't like a huge juxtaposition but there but there was a hopefulness to a lot of this stuff then. And then I could tweak words and do little things to the melody, to the vocal melody. That did make the stuff more, a little bit more hopeful. And and that was all happening as we were sort of coming out of the pandemic a little bit. And so um, it sort of fit, you know, where we were at in the process. Yeah. I mean, talk about that difference in kind of the creative process. You know, you, you have something that... It's kind of a side project, but also it feels like it's going to be something real. But there's no real time pressure, whereas I'm sure when you get together with Pearl Jam in the studio or you used to get together with Fitz, it's like we've got to set a set of time to do this thing. we got to do it. That pressure can sometimes lead to brilliant collaboration and, and creativity as well. Like what's 
What are the strengths and weaknesses of those two kind of extremes? For me personally, I'm very deadline-oriented. Yeah. You know, if I don't have a deadline, I self-impose one. That was honestly probably the toughest part of this, I think, because I will go for the next shiny thing that I see, you know? So if I don't have a deadline, I, I, I try to make it, okay, you need to get this done by today. And it usually has to be a really quick turnaround. The coolest part about it for me is working with Jeff is that he set the the tone very early on by saying the only rule is that there's no rules. And that for me can be a curse as well Yeah, uh, because limitations can be a really helpful thing creatively. But I really needed it at that point Mm -hmm. because I had been dealing with some serious creative constraints musically. Yeah. So to have that carte blanche sort of mentality was really great. And I just had a blast. It was just so, so fun. You know, and originally when we first started this thing, I almost viewed it as something similar to what um, gorillas do in that I viewed it almost like an animated band. And so in my mind, I was writing for animated characters. And that in itself is really liberating because you just are, you're in a whole nother world creatively with no rules whatsoever. And even within, you can follow just one song. I mean, even if you just start with Losing My Mind, the song we just released, from where it starts to where it ends, there's like so many disparate like influences just within the first 30 seconds of that song. It's crazy. And that to me was writing for animated characters, you know, and uh, that's why I think this was so fun for me. I mean, it's like being Kiss, you know, like you put yeah. your makeup on yeah. and then you can just do whatever <laughs> yeah. you want. You know, oh, man, like that's really true. Yeah. Is that a promise you're going to? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think like, you know, there is a there there is a, you know, when you're thinking about playing a show live, you know, it's yeah. sort of like, OK, what are we? But there there is like when we were making this music, there was a, you know, there was a fictitious like we were playing sort of outside of ourselves a little bit, you know, like, I mean, there is a couple tracks where I'm singing in falsetto, which wasn't intended you know, a lot of times I layer my voice up and the falsetto is just a way to sort of like just add some a textural thing to the thing. And John sent back a rough mix of it was, it was something real. He sent it back and I said, dude, you forgot the you forgot the main vocal. And he goes, no, no, dude, you're he's like, your falsetto is awesome. And, I, and it literally took me like two months to like wrap my head around that naked falsetto voice being yeah. out there as my voice. Right. But that plays right into what John was talking about in terms of like, hey, hey, you know, part of the thinking with this stuff is is really, you know, creating these personas outside of everything we've been up to this point. You know, the going back to the the only rule is there's no rules. And so I, I just sort of bought into that. And there's a handful of places where the falsetto, you, you hear it, you know, and it's like it's still it's still hard for me to listen to, you know, like anybody's own voice but um because it like contradicts your view of your public self for so long or i've never put that voice out there ah, got it um yeah i mean I've, i hear it in the studio when i'm you know cutting tracks i don't know if i've sang that way in front of another engineer i think it's always <laughs> me doing that stuff i'm like halfway there <laughs> with being comfortable with it but it does add this whole other thing it's like there is a lot of sort of different personas you know, within these songs and Marlon adds so much to that part of it and having John's kids, 
right. you know, at, at the end of Orange Flag, and just like all that stuff sort of just helps it be this, uh, it's sort of a group of misfits, even though it's mostly just he and I. We'll be back to our conversation with Jeff Ament and John Wicks after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey folks, on August 11th, A New Angle and The Right Question are teaming up for our first live event at the Wilma Theater. Justin and I will be helping the legendary David James Duncan launch his new novel, Sunhouse, a book 16 years in the making. Lauren and I will chat with David. David will read, and renowned singer-songwriter Jeffrey Foucault will illustrate Sunhouse in music. Montana Public Radio presents this evening of story, song, and conversation, August 11th at the Wilmot Theater in Missoula. Get your tickets now at logjampresents.com. Hey, this is Jeff Petticord, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with legendary musicians Jeff Ament and John Wicks about their new collaboration, Deaf Charlie. Yeah, John, talk about that. Ruby and Betty performing mm-hmm. on the album, Your, your Daughter's... That had to have been something really special. Yeah. Well, I should preface that the answer by saying that was Jeff's idea, not mine. I'm not trying to force my kids into these okay. songs. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had actually had them sing on something else. Oh, I had done a soundtrack to a, a Nickelodeon cartoon and had them singing on that. And so I realized that they could do it. And so, yeah, it was a blast. Really, it was really super cool. And then talk about Marlon. You mentioned him earlier. He plays such a presence, particularly in, in, in the video for um, the new single. Like, who is Marlon? How's he part of the collaboration? It's just like a really interesting character. Yeah, he is a, 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 a character in the truest sense of the word. Marlon is one of my best friends from when I lived in Los Angeles. Okay. I had a residency at a place called the Unknown Theater in, uh, in Hollywood. And it was just me... <laughs> it was just me and a few of my close friends, and Marlon being one of them, playing after um, plays would get out in the lobby of this theater. Okay. And it was a little bar, and we would just play. I think it was like every Wednesday night we would play. And most of the time I was laughing so hard I could barely play the drums because he, he's also a drummer and was playing percussion with me. But he would get me laughing so hard that I was just convulsing and like <laughs> and but he has this amazing um I'm a big Jonathan Winters fan, and okay. that's what he reminds me of that level of improvisation and those characters that he inhabits and I always wanted to do something special musically with him and take advantage of that improvisational skill that he has and so when Jeff and I started to make music, I was like, oh, wow. And especially with the animated thing in mind, he, he was so perfect uh-huh. for that. And thankfully, Jeff took one look at what Marlon could do and, and was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's a star. Nice. You know, and um, so it's just been it's just honestly just getting to work with Jeff and, and work with Marlon. It's two of my favorite people on Earth. It's just been really a dream come true. Super. Yeah. You two will be performing at the Ohana Festival. I think it's October 1st. Yeah. Um, coming up. <laughs> yeah, it is coming up. Um, 
I mean, that has to be an interesting endeavor for you, performing at your friend Eddie Vedder and bandmate Eddie Vedder's festival and performing in front of your, your colleagues as musicians. Like all, all of that, it has to um, just ha- kind of trigger some emotions for you. A year ago, we talked about uh, when we wanted the record to come out. And I kept telling Tim, who Tim Bierman, mm-hmm. Missoula guy, who um, was helping sort of organize you know, getting the vinyl made and all that. I said, it's a summer record. And, you know, it feels like a summer record. And um, so playing Ohana, playing, you know, sort of playing her first show on the beach seems like kind of perfect. So I think that's going to have something to do with like, I think we're going to coalesce as we're playing up there. We don't even even know what we are, you know, like we, I think we both have these ideas, like maybe how we're going to set up and we're trying to figure out like how we integrate um, all these great musicians and Marlon, and I think like I think the songs are gonna are gonna grow as we're playing them that night. You know, mm-hmm. I think we're you know, and so that part's super exciting. You know, and I think if we get to the point to where we can make another record, I think I think playing that show is gonna help us understand what the next sure thing is, and I think we only you know the three songs that marlon's on like he sort of inhabits like three different characters like i feel like the door is like widen you know the door is opening wider for the next batch of songs uh because we there's even less rules (laughs) than we (laughs) thought yeah yeah once you put it out in the world as a sort of you add some persona to it on stage it kind of has to it develops a life of its own i would imagine yeah absolutely the great thing about now working at University of Montana is that I'm sort of in the center of this huge talent pool, whether it's the faculty or the students. And so it was very easy for me to just put a band together for this one show just using faculty and students, you know. And it's just so fun. And like just those phone calls to yeah. be able to say that <laughs> we're playing Ohana Festival to these faculty and students. They were just over the moon. And, wow. and that was really fun for, for me to do that. And um, I'm excited to start rehearsals. That's fantastic. We should also mention some of the other very Montana and Missoula-based threads of this collaboration Starting with the name, Deaf Charlie. I mean, that has a rich history in, in Montana lore. How did you arrive at Deaf Charlie and tell listeners who might not know the story of, the, of that name? Well, if, if you're in the business to come up with a band name these days, it's almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, that's Everyone's why, been taken? Well, and that's yeah. why you see all these band names without vowels and all that stuff. Sure. Because it's like the only way you can come up with a, an interesting band name is to like take the vowels out. But we started going back and forth, and then we started... I, you know, I started thinking, like, maybe if we find, like, an interesting Montana character, you know, in history, like, just some some guy that's maybe he's not even real, you know. And the Wild Bunch kept coming, right, raising to the top. There was something about that whole uh, story that you don't know how much of it is true. And uh, and that was the one that just, I think, at the end, I think, I think we both agreed on that felt like it was... Um, and it's called Deaf Charlie, so it lends itself to you know, hearing music, you know, um, and I immediately thought like, I, you know, hear the pitchfork one word review. It's like, you know, like, (laughs) of course they're deaf. Can you tell by the, can you tell by this record? And listen to that falsetto. (laughs) (laughs) And this, this, uh, album also comes out in vinyl. The album itself, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a piece of art. In fact, 
Edgar Smith, Missoula-based artist, did the cover art. When Jeff first showed me that painting that's the front cover, it's such a strong image, and it was so perfect and somehow funny and yet powerful and dark all at the same time. And I honestly just couldn't believe we would actually have access to that piece of art. Mm. And thankfully, through Jeff, uh, he can speak about Edgar. A little yeah, bit how'd you cross paths with Edgar? I think I met Edgar like 20 years ago. He lived here and worked a little bit. He grew up in Laurel in eastern Montana, and so it was okay. around like the whole mining scene. So this show that he had was like all these, you know, really sort of heavy uh, mining and envi- environmental stuff sort of tied into it, like really powerful stuff. And he has such a strong um, style. I asked him to do some art um, for a single like 20 years ago. And then we stayed in touch. I ran into him maybe at the beginning of the pandemic uh, in the good food store uh, parking lot. And um, we, we'd started to do some stuff at that point. And I, that image was sort of in the back of my head. And uh, I kind of reconnected with him, got his info. And then about a year ago, I asked him, I said, hey, we're, we're doing this project. And I think we might want to use the, you know, the two brothers, you know, painting for the art and would you be into doing like if i send you pictures of me and john can you make us look like we're part of that crew like, yeah like we work with those two brothers and so he just did i mean the back painting is so f- fantastic like, yeah. just all these little subtle things in it and you can kind of just you know if you look really close to the faces you can tell who's who and it's cool you know it's cool it's cool that it keeps it sort of montana and it steers you in a different direction in terms of like getting into the songs you see this makes you think about the songs differently yeah that, that part's cool and the decision to make a record album make vinyl i mean we're in this age where it's unclear if an album even is a thing anymore what is an album and does putting something on vinyl mean you have a different sort of responsibility to build a story across the arc of the songs well ironically vinyl is one of the only aspects of the recording industry that's actually growing yeah. at this point <laughs> which I don't know <laughs> that's a what that says about our industry but folks are buying vinyl which is really cool the other cool thing about vinyl is like you say you have to think about the sequencing a lot more than if you were just putting it out streaming and it's also labor intensive you know so if you're putting on a record you really want to hear that music you know and and I love that about vinyl so it's it's kind of cool that it's become a thing again. And also to be able to do use artwork like Edgar's artwork, it's just such a uh, a pleasure to to have something and f- make it feel like a work of art and just some freebie calling card thing that you have out there online. I, I mean, imagine if, imagine if Cormac McCarthy, rest in peace, imagine if he mm. came into being a writer like 10 years from now and there was no books. Yeah. And, and and all that writing only exists, like, in the ether. That just seems so sad, so criminally sad. Like, there's something about, like, when you make music, like, like if you can have all your records, like, all right there, and you kind of look at them every once in a while, and it's like, it's like an empowering thing. Mm. It's like, and I, there's some, you know, it's just when we grew up, man, records were like this magic thing, like, where you you held them, and you pulled the lyrics out, and you stared, you try to find the little you know, secret Easter eggs, you know, in the artwork. And and it's it's important for that stuff to be, 
one of them's on John's bookshelf and one of them's on my bookshelf. And it's like part of our, it's part of our, you know, it's like for lack of a better word, our legacy or whatever. But it's also an empowering thing. It's like you look at that and go like, I did that and I can do more. It's an important signpost in many ways yeah. and multi-dimensions to it. Fellas, best of luck uh, with, the, with the album. Best of luck as you figure out what live Def Charlie is going to be all, all about. <laughs> and, and, and most of all, just a profound thank you for, for me. And uh, it's an honor to play some of your music along with our uh, credits and intro and so forth. So, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here and um, all that you do for Montana. Thanks, Justin. Thanks a lot, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.